This is Quarantine Conversations. Brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth and our host... Hello, I'm Daniel Gowerbach. Is Daniel. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on the podcast, we're talking to... Minar Al-Assad. Hi, Minar. Uh, welcome to the Quarantine Conversations. In this podcast series, we aim to meet people at various stages in their scientific uh, studies. So would you consider yourself to be a student, a teacher, a hobbyist, a researcher? Where are you on that spectrum? I am currently a research scientist at uh, AOAS, but I will be starting my PhD um, in January. So I'm kind of in between right now, a researcher and a student. Oh, wonderful. Oh, that's very exciting for you. Thanks. (laughs) Yeah, I'm excited. Now, you're a planetary scientist, right? Yes. What is a planetary scientist or what does it mean to you? Planetary scientist is an umbrella term, really, that describes people who study planets. And although the term geo is refers to Earth, studying Earth, we use it for other planets as well. So in terms of planetary scientists, there are a number of different disciplines. You can be planetary geologist, you can be a planetary geophysicist, a planetary geochemist, atmospheric scientist. So anything that applies to Earth that you could see, just work, put the word planetary in front of it, and then that could be studying other planets. Personally, I am a planetary geophysicist. Some of the work that I do includes geology or plasma physics and uh, atmospheric physics. Well, did you say plasma physics? Plasma physics, yes. What's that? That is the study of, so the solar wind, which is the one that comes from the sun, is a gas that is hot and ionized, meaning it is charged particles, and that is plasma. Uh, So when the solar wind encounters planets that are magnetized, that have a magnetic field like Earth or Mercury, because they're charged particles, they will interact with with the magnetic field. And I study specifically the interactions of the solar wind with Mercury's magnetic field. So that's my study of plasma physics. That's really cool. I didn't even know Mercury had a magnetic field. Yeah. I mean, it was a surprise in the 70s when it was discovered because it was so sm- it's a, such a small planet. Scientists thought that it was frozen over so it didn't have a liquid core. But Mariner 10 spacecraft went there and measured a magnetic an internally generated magnetic field. It's much weaker than Earth is, but it exists. Wow. That's yeah. really That's surprising and fascinating. (laughs) Now, how did you get into planetary sciences? It's not like that's a Halloween costume or um, (laughs) I've never seen a planetary scientist Barbie, so. Yeah, (laughs) well, going back to when I was a kid, um, I grew up in Saudi Arabia and women had um, more of a prescribed role in what they were supposed to do in society. I know a lot of females Uh, my cousins who graduated to become doctors and nurses and teachers. However, there was always um, the the only scientist's uh, job that's acceptable for uh, female was a doctor when I was growing up. 
So I wanted to kind of move away from that. And I was good at math and I really liked math. So I wanted to be a scientist. As a kid, what you think a scientist is, uh, someone's wearing a lab coat and who does experiments with their hands. But of course, then there is NASA, which does really cool planetary missions. And all kids think that NASA is cool. So I decided that I'm going to become a NASA scientist. Now, fast forward, when I was graduating from high school, I decided to choose a more practical career path and decided to become a geophysicist to, to study, which is relevant in Saudi, exploration of oil and gas. But then I came to UBC and I in, took the course EOS 2, 210, which was the MATLAB course. I think it's 210. I'm not sure. MATLAB? Uh, 211. No, that's 211. MATLAB? MATLAB, yeah. And Dr. Katherine Johnson was uh, teaching it. And one of the assignments that she gave us was calculating a spacecraft path to, if you launch it from Earth, and where, how it will get to Mer or Mars. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was very cool. First, I thought it was kind of amazing that we can do the basic calculations. Just a second year undergraduate student can do those calculations and predict spacecraft path. So I approached her and I asked her if she needed help. And then I found out she works in planetary missions. And so I asked her if she needed an undergraduate assistant over the summer. And she did, and she uh, emailed me a semester later. And I started working with her, and I basically have been working with her ever since. So that's how I got into it. <laughs> that's amazing. It's always great when um, one prof can really, or, or one teacher can really uh, influence your career path. Yeah. Um, I'm sure there's some kind of uh, analogy there or, or metaphor. She taught you how to cal calculate the trajectory of a spaceship and therefore change the career path of, of you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I like that. So you are a scientist. Have you made any discoveries that you would like to share? I would say that the discoveries that were made by the OSIRIS-REx team as a whole are things that I uh, would like to share. I have been over the past four years working as a member of the OSIRIS-REx team and become very clear to me that science is done by a team and not by a person, at least planetary science. Mm -hmm. That's why you see a lot of the papers that come out of missions like that usually have, you know, 10, 20, sometimes 30 or 40 co-authors on them because we just all work together. The most recent milestone in the OSIRIS-REx mission, uh, which do you want me, do you, do you want me to elaborate on what OSIRIS-REx is? Or? Yeah, I was just going to ask. Yeah. So OSIRIS-REx is a, a NASA mission that is uh, aim, aimed to um, go to an asteroid, a small, a small near-Earth asteroid, study it in detail, in as much detail as we can, and then collect a sample from it and bring it back to Earth to, to physically study the sample. It's the first NASA mission of this type. Uh, the Japanese have done this before. The Japanese uh, space agency, JAXA, has done it before, and we've been working closely with them. Um, it launched in September 2016 from Florida, from the Kennedy Space Center, and that was coincidentally my first day on the mission, and I was um, 
I was lucky enough to go and see the launch. Uh, yeah, I was very, I mean, even though I wasn't emotionally invested in it at that point, but I was emotionally invested in being a planetary scientist. And I felt very lucky to be a part of that and be able to witness it. It took two years for the spacecraft to reach Bennu. And when it did, about a year and a half was just mapping the asteroid. And last week, we got the sample from the asteroid successfully. Uh, so that was a big, big event. And then yesterday, it was stowed and put back in the capsule that is going to come back to Earth. That was somewhat official end of the mission for a big part of the team that was, has been working on it for a long time. Yeah, you've met a, a lot of really important and, and scary um, uh, milestones where things could have gone wrong. You've passed those points and now it's almost a knock on wood, <laughs> clear sailing back to Earth. Yeah, yeah. Um, there were a lot of obstacles in the way, but the team has handled those amazingly. So going back to your original question, which is the discoveries that were made by the team. One of interest is that Bennu is an active asteroid. So we, th we tend to think of um, asteroids and comets as two separate bodies in the solar system. Comets are made of ice mostly, and they have tails. So they are active because they material or volatiles are ejected from the tail uh, region of it when it's traveling. Whereas as asteroids, we tend to think of them as just pieces of rocks that don't interact much with that, with the atmosphere around, or sorry, with the space environment around them. However, when we first got there, we saw that Bennu had these tiny explosions of particle ejections oh. that we believe are put it somewhere between an asteroid and a comet. I mean, it's much closer to an asteroid, but it shows you that it's really a spectrum. You can have something that is close, like in between a comet and an asteroid, or you could have something that's closer to one end or the other. That was a really cool uh, discovery that was made by the team. That's really exciting. I, I didn't hear about that. Do you think there's water on the asteroid or ice? Uh, ice, yes. Water... It's too cold and there's not enough temperature below this uh, and pressure below the surface to sustain liquid water. We believe that the parent body, so Bennu uh, formed from, the stories that Bennu formed from a catastrophic impact to a bigger body that existed in the solar system, then fragments of the parent body coalesced together and formed rubble pile asteroid Bennu. So it's a not a single cohesive rock, but it's really just a bunch of little uh, rocks that are held together by gravity or cohesion or combination of the two. It's really cool. Yeah, so Bennu, we believe that Bennu's uh, parent body had liquid water on it. There's some indication, actually, one of the science papers that came out in the Science Journal special issue uh, two weeks ago talks about evidence for such uh, alterations on the rocks that we see that indicate there was uh, liquid water. But more importantly, there's just clays everywhere on the surface of Bennu. Spectrally, you can see them and clays form as we know as interact interactions of liquid water and organic material. That was a big indication that there was at some point liquid water. 
this is something that always amazes me with you planetary scientists. You can look at something as uh, seemingly innocent as clay and say, well, that's clear uh, evidence that there was water interacting with this material. Yeah. <laughs> You're amazing. Thank you. Um, that was done by spectroscopy and I am not a spectroscopist. So I was, I heard the news rather than discovered this news. And what is spectroscopy? It is looking at light spectra from a body uh, to try to tell what it's made of. We are used to looking at uh, images in front of us in the visible uh, wavelength spectrum. So that's what we can see, but we, we can create instruments that measure the intensity of the light emitted at all possible wavelengths. And so spectroscopy, usually you would have a spectrometer that measures the intensity of light at different spectra uh, or different wavelengths and uh, specific components have signature at different wavelengths. For example, carbon dioxide will have a different uh, curve than H2O, than water would, and clays would have different than uh, iron. And so by looking, by looking at a planetary body and then comparing it with what we know about the different elements and com chemical compounds, we can deduce what it's made of. That's really cool. Are you looking for anything in particular with the, the specimens from Bennu? Yes, not myself, but I will answer for the spe specimen itself is important because Bennu is carbonate rich asteroid. So it has organic matter. We believe it has or organic matter and it is also very old. It formed kind of at the beginning of the solar system. And because the parent body that it came, came from was small, it, um, we think it was like about a kilometer in diameter. It didn't go through chemical changes like planets did. So there is enough temperature and pressure on planets that everything changed. It's not the same as protoplanetary dust, the, the thing, original dust cloud that's formed our solar system. It's completely changed since then and on planets. But on small bodies, we don't think that that change has happened. So this is sampling material that is old and that's formed the solar system. Um, so we want to know things like how much volatiles, meaning water, for example, or organic material there was at the beginning of the solar system. And then part two is that uh, scientists believe that water and organic matter could have been delivered to Earth through collisions with asteroids. So large asteroids came and just brought a lot of water and organic material, and that could have been the precursor to life on Earth. So that's also a thing that people will be looking for in this sample. I'm not a sample scientist. So the cool thing about this mission is that, that we have had people who, whose jobs were entirely pre-launch. So those are mostly people who uh, built the spacecraft and, uh, and planned uh, the technical and mechanical um, electronics on the spacecraft. And then there are people whose job was mainly during flight. So when, and I'm one of them, I'm uh, remote sensing basically. So everything that we got remotely from the asteroid. And yesterday 
was to a lot of us kind of the last day on the mission. And then there are people whose job is going to start once this the uh, specimen comes back and the, uh, the sample comes back. And then they're going to do a lot of lab work and try and study it and ask questions and answer them through that. Are you going to get your hands on any of the samples? No, I will not. Um, <laughs> Canada will because Canada built one of the instruments on the spacecraft. And so Canada gets 5% of the sample that is brought back. Wow. And any scientist can apply uh, to write a proposal to get a part of the sample to analyze it with uh, with their labs and do work on it. I don't have a lab, I don't have a physical lab, and I, I'm not, uh, I don't have a background in studying materials like that. So I am happy to end my contribution to the mission with getting the sample. Well, it's, it's an important part of the, the uh, mission. Um, and without that, it would have failed. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, how much are they returning? It's tough to tell from the photographs. Yeah, it is. We don't quite know the sample the mission success was based on returning 60 grams of material, but it can be up to two kilograms is possible uh, to, to hold in that head. And a really neat experiment that was going to happen to actually measure how much sample there was, was, um, was to, because the sample was uh, placed in an arm that extended to the surface of an asteroid and grabbed basically some of it because there is an arm that extends and the end of uh, end of it has a sample the plan was to uh, extend the arm fully and then rotate the spacecraft in order to measure the moment of inertia of the spacecraft and compare it to the same measurements when the sample head was empty mm. so the difference there would have told us how much material there would have been Everyone was really excited about this. The problem is when we got the sample and then imaged some imaged the uh, head after the sample collection, we saw particles leaving. Every time you move the head, particles were leaving slowly. And it turned out that the flap didn't close properly. So can you imagine rotating the spacecraft very quickly? A lot of material would have been lost to space. And so uh, the team decided to forego that and try to put the sample in the capsule as soon as possible so that uh, we can avoid removing more material. Having said that, the images um, and a lot of analysis that was done on them indicate that more than 60 grams of material was acquired. And that's why there was a decision to still, we didn't think that there was a need to attempt it again. Yeah, that's just to satiate curiosity at that point. Yeah. Yes. And uh, let's get as much of it as we can. Good for you. Exactly. <laughs> you mentioned you were doing uh, remote sensing and communicating with the spacecraft. I know that with the, the large distances of space, mm -hmm. there can be a bit of a lag. Is uh, Bennu far enough that there's a lag? There is. Yeah, so it uh, depends on what direct contact, it depends on where it is in its orbit around the sun, um, because Bennu is a near-Earth asteroid. so. It, it gets close to Earth twice a year. There, that distance changes if it if it is on the other side of the sun, that it will take longer uh, to communicate with it than if it's closer to us here. So that 
it varies from basically nothing to 18 minutes, I, I believe, if it's on the other side of the sun. Oh, wow. Um, and that was the case when it was, when the sample collection was happening. Um, however, we don't communicate, the spacecraft has to be facing Earth and pointing its antenna to Earth in order for us to get the large amount of data that we can get. So throughout the mission, with the exception of TAG now, throughout the mission, we would acquire data and then, you know, once, twice a day, the spacecraft would stop make, get acquiring data, turn face Earth, and then transmit it back to us, and then go back and get more data. Um, and so it was never, we never got anything in real time. We always had to wait for it. Hmm. And, and then in TAG, uh, during TAG, it was sending us very low amounts of data as it was happening. So it, just telling us, basically, I'm here, or I decided to get the sample rather than wave off, which is a different story that I can talk about if you want. But it was giving us very small amounts of data, not the images, but just like pings, basically, like this is what's going on uh, during the tag. And then after sorry. that, it turned, tag? Oh, sorry, tag is the uh, touch and go. It refers for touch and go. And it's that's uh, the sample collection uh, maneuver. Mm -hmm. um, it's just been a part of my vocabulary now, and I assume that everyone knows what I'm talking about when I say it. No um, but yeah, it, it's um, the touch and go maneuver to grab the sample and bring it back. Cool. And then you said there was something else. Oh, the decision to, so the, I was saying that the spacecraft is, was telling us I've decided to go for tag or not, like ping us. So uh, that was a very important thing in the mission that I, I may, amazed by the team who's made this possible. Um, but the story is, so Bennu is small. It's about 500 meters in diameter. And it's dark, pretty much black to, to eye. So we couldn't really see it with visible light from Earth. What we did get are, are radio data, like radio images, and then some spectral data from it. And the inter there was a big campaign to interpret that data and try to get as much information about Bennu before we launched the spacecraft so that it helps us with the design. The spectral data implied that Bennu had a very smooth surface, basically like sub-centimeter scale particles that were all over the surface. And then we got there um, in 2018, and we got our first images, and then a completely different picture uh, evolved. Bennu is very rough and we didn't see any material that's sub-centimeter <laughs> in size. Actually, like even few centimeters in size, we couldn't see. It was just littered with boulders that are tens of meters to meter size. And so the mission had to be redesigned as we were there because we couldn't, the, the plan was pick an area that's about 50 meters in in, in diameter and then the spacecraft can go anywhere in there and get the sample, but it's now a very different story. The areas that we were looking at are, um, you know, 10 meters and the, the sample, like the sampleable material is maybe like two, three meters. And if you move like a meter off where you actually want to go, that would probably, you probably not get as much sample as you were hoping for. So 
spacecraft navigation had to change. And because we couldn't communicate with the spacecraft in real life, so we can't look at the images and say, oh, like, go right a little bit, go left a little bit. They, we had to do um, automatic, uh, autonomous na navigation. So the spacecraft has to navigate for itself, decide where it is, and then as it's going for the sample, decides if it's safe or unsafe to do it and then abort mission on its own. So that was, and it's it's a really cool system that was developed and it's basically like eyes, developing eyes for the spacecraft. The team that I was a part of is the altimetry team um, and they are responsible for creating the topography and the shape model of the asteroid. And so what happened is that we created all of these little topographic features and gave them to the spacecraft and the spacecraft knows where every one of them should be. And so it does triangulations based on where it sees them to figure out where it is exactly. And if something appeared that was not what it expected, then it would abort mission basically. It would say, oh, no, I'm too close to this. This is too hazardous for me. Um, I could like hit this and break something, one of the instruments. So uh, at that point it would have been able to decide this is no, not good abort mission. Um, so we were listening for th things like that. And luck, so a very important point for me was when the spacecraft set it is a go for tag. So it did, did not decide to abort mission uh, when it was five meters from the surface. And that was, you know, everything that happens after that is just, it's really hard to know until we got the data back. Um, so that was the last communication we got from the spacecraft basically. Oh, where were you when that happened? I was home, unfortunately. No, I mean, you know, you we've been working on this as a team for four years. And throughout 2019, um, in a, a, a last part of 2018, I was going to Tucson, Arizona, which is where the headquarters for this mission is. Uh, on a monthly basis, I would go like basically like a month, a week or two weeks there and then a week or two weeks in Vancouver. And so I got to really work with the team and really know them. And we had always imagined that we're all going to watch TAG together. However, because of the pandemic, that was no longer possible. So uh, instead, we had a Zoom call where we were all watching it together and chatting. Um, and then I had like three different screens at it on my TV screen. There was the big animation, the NASA Live, uh, and then on on like one screen I had the chat with the team, and then the other screen was like seeing the team members and their reactions and everything. And yeah, so I was I was home watching that, and I it was nice to be able to at least see the faces of everyone else that was working. Um, it made it feel more like we're watching it together. Well, I'm glad you got that experience. You yeah. uh, clearly deserved it after all that work. <laughs> and I'm sure they were happy to see you after so many months away. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Now, this seems like a virtual field story because a lot of your work is done through the computer screen. Do you do any physical field work here on Earth? No, <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I wish if I had, if we had the technology for me to go to Mercury and study it or like go to Venom and study it, obviously I would. But as you said, most of my work is remote sensing and therefore I don't do a lot of field work or any uh, currently. I have tried field work before and it was very 
like very interesting and I wish I could do more of it. I, as an undergraduate research assistant, I worked with Dr. Christian Schuf uh, in the Yukon, you know, one of the memorable four weeks of my life. And for my PhD, actually, I'm going to go back to earth kind of and study earth uh, as a planet, you know, still, I still consider myself a planetary scientist at heart, but because I will be studying earth, I might be, I'm going to have the opportunity to do some field work, but I am interested in studying the invisible and that reduces the chances of me doing field work. That's fair. Uh, I think your uh, Osiris uh, Rex stories are an amazing um, collection of virtual field stories. Yeah. By the way, what are you doing your PhD in? I'm studying the decoupling between convection and an Earth's core and mantle over geologic history. So I want to understand basically, in a sense, the thermal evolution of Earth, whether or not the assumptions that we make based on today, how Earth is today, hold early in Earth's history, and how that could have changed the magnetic field that is generated in the core of the Earth. And I don't have a more specific answer. It's it's currently that's where I'm I'm heading. That's what I want to study. But I'm sure that it'll be more directed when I actually start it. Yeah, I'm sure it's one of those things that you'll know once you're done. Yeah. Um, <laughs> more clearly. Yeah. Now your research seems fascinating. Uh, does it have any real world applications, or like, will it affect? Uh, people on the street? That's hard for me to answer because this is pure research and pure research in my opinion is important even if I personally don't know what its real world applications are. I think that a lot of the discoveries happen as a team and, and I think as a society we work on things as a team where some people study things um, in, a, in a pure manner, just ask questions and want to understand. And then after that, a genera different generation or people in the same uh, generation will take that knowledge and develop it into technologies. But it's, it's hard when you are talking about studying processes that happened over you know millions or billions of years to say exactly how that's gonna affect today or technology or like real world. But for example, I don't have much knowledge of this, but um, I told you I study Mercury's plasma environment. Mm -hmm. And I know that there has been research that, try, that ex tries to replicate the same thing that happens in Mercury or Earth's uh, like magnetic fields and how their interaction with the sun to create propul magnetic propulsion engines. Oh. I, again, don't know too much about the, the process of these, but that is an example of some scientists studying space and solar wind, and then other scientists and engineers uh, taking that knowledge and making actual useful technology from it. Great, you're contributing to the greater body of scientific wisdom, and who knows where some scientist is gonna take that in the future. You could uh, be laying the foundation for technologies we can't even imagine right now. So thank you in advance. Yeah, yeah, no worries. Maybe, maybe it'll be helpful in like um, understanding also, you know, 
how to terraform Mars or something. Uh, I mean, interactions of solar wind with the planet's atmosphere are very important and magnetic fields protect or not a planet from losing its atmosphere. And so that will be a consideration definitely when we try to terraform another planet. Now there's so many really cool things with your work. Uh, what are your favorite aspects of your, your work and your research? I know it's hard to choose just one or two, but. Yeah, te like a technical aspect or? Whatever, when it, what is it that it comes across your desk and you think, oh, yippee. Yeah, um, something that's very exciting for me is um, seeing something for the first time. Visual thing, for example, was seeing the first images from of Bennu from Osiris-Rex. This is something that no one has ever seen before and you're seeing it for the first time and have the opportunity to understand it in a way that could change people, can, can change humanity's understanding of science. I always thought that it was um, un unfortunate that <laughs> I'm in an I'm a scientist in an era where so much seems to be known already. You know, there's no plate tectonics to discover anymore, or like the different layers of the Earth that's already been discovered. But the nice thing about planetary science is that there is still an opportunity to see things for the first time and discover like major, you know, view changing uh, observations through planetary science. Um, so that's visually, you can see images, but again, you can also like see things in the data that can change our understanding of planets and why they're different from each other and why does this have an atmosphere and this one doesn't, where does it have liquid water and this one doesn't, what happened that made them evolve so differently. That is very exciting. And, and even though I have studied Mercury as a planet formally, I always like to read any of the scientific papers about different planets, because for me, uh, comparing them in our solar system, at least comparing the different planets evolutions tells us a lot about the importance of ours as well and how it's extremely unique. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I have to admit, I, growing up, I had these exact same thought uh, that, you know, all of science had already been discovered. So, if I were to go into science, I would have to make some t tiny discovery and, you know, magnify it. Uh, but it turns out, like you said, there's so much more that we don't know. We just have to keep looking. <laughs> yes, yes. And maybe that speaks to uh, our need to be special um, and, and discover something that has your name on it, like gravity. You know, I'm going to be the next Newton or the next Albert Einstein. But really, um, science today is evolved through collaborative work and rarely through individual work, more so through collaborative work. And for me being a part of the, for example, OSIRIS-REx mission, I see that that is a, a limited collaborative team that each one of us would never have been able to discover the things that we discovered as a team. And so that is, uh, a small representation of the way we do science in general. It's a team that works together on earth. It's the entire scientific community here, but for that mission, it was a smaller one. So it was easier to see. And, but today that's how we are, are discovering all the things about earth. 
yeah, like you said, science is often done not on one's own, but in a community. And that community can be supportive or it can uh, stand in a person's way. Especially this past summer, we've noticed uh, the divides between uh, uh, racial divides and uh, have really come to the fore. We've seen gender divides um, coming up. Is there anything that's caused you to unfairly struggle in this field of study? Um. Or do you feel that it's been supportive and, and welcoming? So um, I have experienced sexism. And I think I don't think that any woman has never experienced sexism, uh, whether that is in the workplace or not. I mean, I told you about my uh, childhood and growing up and thinking that there is a specific role that I have to satisfy in society. And I decided to rebel against that. I'm very glad I did. So that was the beginning for me. I did experience it as a scientist currently, especially as a young female scientist in, uh, in a field that is dominated by you know, middle-aged middle white men. They don't like to be challenged by women. And usually you have to be, you know, assert yourself, be oblivious to their, their attitudes towards, towards you. And sometimes you, you know, lose on opportunities because of that. And that has happened to me, but I am very fortunate that my immediate environment is an immediate group is a group of amazing science, female scientists. My supervisor, Catherine Johnson is, um, you know, one of the best in, in the field and she is very well known and she has created a generation of, of younger scientists that have achieved so much in, in their career, whether or not they decided to go into academia or in industry. And I think that makes, that trumps everything, all the negative things that I have experienced. Um, and, uh, but I, yes, I, the, there have been setbacks and I try to be careful to not attribute things to gender or race because it could be that the scientific community is extremely competitive. And so uh, we tend to not be respectful of each other and compete over reputation or discoveries and hurt each other along the way. It could be that, you know, I'm more likely to be in that situation because I am a young female scientist. Maybe it's because I am a young female person of color scientist, but I think that seeing more and more women in science is very inspiring. And that is something that I've definitely seen in the OSIRIS-REx mission. I um, made a lot of friendships with a lot of amazing young male and female scientists that has helped me kind of solidify my my belief that with the generations, like with the next generation, things will change for for us. That's that's good to know, and I'm glad that things haven't been too too difficult. I'm sorry for the times when, when at the very least, you suspected that there was some sexism or or racism going on, uh, and that is kind of the mo the most tricky kind to identify when you're not sure if that's just the way the world is, or if it's actually someone's um, discriminating against you yeah. uh, for some reason. 
but yeah, Catherine is an amazing person and I, I can't speak to her mentorship, but I've seen uh, the way that she mentors her, her students and mm-hmm. I'm glad you're one of them. And I think Thank you'll you. be at a next or a mentor in the next generation as well, <laughs> because yeah. you are certainly inspiring. Um, now, having said that, I am moving to the States for my PhD, and so maybe I would answer that differently um, there. Uh, if you if you ask me next year whether or not I have or have not experienced discrimination, and in at least the academic community in the university environment, I've not seen anything that makes me makes me think that that will be the case for me in the future. My next supervisor is a female, a young female scientist. And so I'm I'm very excited to uh, also work with her. And uh, we have a diverse team. It's gonna be a diverse team like it is now. Fabulous, where are you going to? I'm going to Berkeley. Wonderful. Yes, I was supposed to go, I mean, I was supposed to start in August, last August. Because of the pandemic, I had to defer my admission and starting my PhD and uh, luckily, I was able to defer it until January, so that's when I'm going to start. And also, luckily for me, Catherine had a job for me in the meantime, so I remained uh, with her. It also worked out because A, COVID situation is better here than it is in California. B, I was able to stay on and work and see OSIRIS-REx finish uh, the mission, so that was exciting for me. So it it seemed like a bad thing at the beginning, but I honestly, it turned out to be for the best, I think. (laughs) Well, you actually anticipated my final question. With the COVID-19 outbreak, uh, did it impact your your work at all? Or uh, because everything's based on the computer, were you unaffected? So uh, there are two direct impacts, I guess, which I have already mentioned. One of them is deferring my admission. And the other one is not being able to go in person and work on OSIRIS-REx anymore. However, like you said, my work is mostly remote and I work because I uh, I collaborate with people from all over the world, all over the United States, especially for OSIRIS-REx. We did a lot of our work virtually. Um, I like to, you know, be a hipster and say, I used to Zoom before Zoom was cool. <laughs> I mean, we used to meet, have multiple weekly meetings all virtually, you know. But uh, it still did affect my work. Working uh, in this same place that you live, I think, blurs the boundary between work and and personal life. And so I tend to kind of go in, somewhere in between two extremes where I either wake up and then walk directly to my desk and sit down and work until, you know, I'm about to go to bed. And then on the other hand, I just get occupied with chores around the house and then don't get as much work done because it just, when you see something, it feels like you need to do it right away. So, and also just, you know, the fact of me and my partner both live in a one bedroom apartment and have to work and take our meetings and coordinate that makes it a little difficult. So I think that productivity overall went down during the pandemic. Uh, I can't complain, honestly. Well, you landed on the asteroid in the middle of a pandemic. So I think uh, (laughs) if it went down, it didn't go down enough. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, You can still be proud of what you did. (laughs) Thank you. 
Well, Manar, those are all the questions I had for today. Um, is there anything you want to say before I let you go? Uh, no, I just wanted to thank you for doing this. Um, it is great to uh, get a sample of uh, all the cool things that are happening in the department for people in the department and for people outside. And uh, I just want to thank you for doing that. Oh, thank you. Uh, thanks for sharing your research. I didn't know you were doing all this until, um, yeah, until I got the email. So I'm really pleased that you sat down and shared your stories and your, um, your science and your expertise uh, with everyone. And I wish you all the best with your PhD in Berkeley. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Quarantine Conversations. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash quarantine conversations.